0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I think that owning your mess is such a strong and necessary leadership competency because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. You can teach through your messes because I don't have your skills. I don't have your talents. I can't think or speak or act like you. I can't replicate you, but I can avoid your mistakes, your bad decisions, and your messes. And if you're vulnerable not to share them with me, man, that's half the battle is learning from your mistakes. And so that's going to be my legacy in many ways is this mess to success series.
2: That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Scott, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Hey, my honor. Thanks again for the platform.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we had you back here when you wrote Management Mess. And I I believe if I remember correctly, we titled your episode, How to Become the Leader That People Would Want to Follow. And you have a new book out called Marketing Mess. And we will talk about that, of course, in a lot of detail. But before we get into that, uh, I want to start asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: And my mother was a full-time stay-at-home mom, managed uh, the household and was kind of a classic 1970s you know, housewife and mother. Very blessed that my mother was able to stay home, chose to stay home and raise my brother and I. My, mother, my mother's never had a profession outside <laughs> of the home. Uh, and I think did a decent job, great job raising my brother and I. My father was a full-time uh, illustrator, uh, mid-level leader at a defense contractor, Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, worked a very sort of stable, classic career for the better part of three decades. And we had a very, you might say, traditional 70s lifestyle, you know, raised in a middle-class family in Central Florida.
2: Yeah. I mean, what impact did that end up having on you? And, and, you know, what kind of advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world and, and you know, career paths and all that kind of stuff?
1: I think as I age and am now the son to three or father to three boys, our boys are, let's see, six, nine and 11. I think it had a it's increasingly evident the impact my parents' upbringing had on me for good and for bad, mostly for good, right? My parents were obsessed with stability. There wasn't a lot of filet mignon and there wasn't any top ramen. It was sort of like, you know, metaphorically meatloaf every night. My parents were both raised in very um, unstable homes. My father's dad died when he was 10 of cancer and his twin brother died of polio. My parents, my mother's parents were alcoholics. And so I think they went overboard a bit on stability, mostly for good, some for bad. Not a lot of risk-taking, not a lot of adventure, but like I said, a lot of stability. And I think um, my parents taught me the value of hard work. I mean, my, my mother, although not um, a professional outside the home, you know, I mean, you know, managing two boys and getting creative with a budget and keeping a house clean and cooking three meals a day and, you know, all of our homework, we were, my brother and I were taught the value of hard work, which I have one of the best work ethics of anybody I know, and that's direct correlation to watching my parents, you know, mow the lawn and trim the bushes and wash the cars and change their own oil. And I don't do a lot of those things now because I'm able to hire and outsource them, but there's no question their stability and hard work ethic has paid off in how I parent, but also, and, and maybe some of the risks that I'm willing to take because they were unwilling to. So I, I appreciate all the good and the bad that they provided for us. Mostly good.
2: Yeah. Well, so it's funny because um, I've always wanted to ask somebody this. So I kind of look back at sort of being raised by Indian parents. And of course, they're much like it sounds like your parents were stability, you know, strict discipline, work ethic. Uh, and it's kind of funny because I think only now in in retrospect, do I recognize that all the things that I thought were a pain in the ass about my parents and the way they raised me have been invaluable uh, as an adult. And I wonder what are the things that you thought were a pain in the ass about your parents that ended up being invaluable to you later on in life?
1: You mean it's like kind of like general life lessons? Yeah. I mean, things that
2: they, they made you do or forced you to do that you thought were kind of a nightmare. So for example, when we were in school, my roommate had asked me once, he said, did you get straight ACE? And I laughed and I said, dude, getting straight A's was kind of a rule of, of my parents' household. You didn't get your report cards put on fridges because Indian parents don't do that. That's just what they expect. And I realized now it wasn't actually about the grade. It was about developing the intrinsic motivation to actually finish something and do something well.
1: Gosh, These are great questions. That I've never been asked before, including by my, by my therapist. So I had to think about
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to do that to people.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, we were not required to get straight A's. My brother did. I clearly did not. Uh, I, I kind of go back to my previous comment of we just were, we were raised about the value of hard work. My parents would, uh, were big on saving for a rainy day. My parents were never caught off guard. And so we did not take elaborate vacations and buy elaborate homes. We lived a nice upper-class, middle, middle-class family upper middle class, I might say. We had everything we needed and not everything we wanted. And so mm. I was taught the value of paying cash for items. I mean, I, I have, you know, visceral memory, memories of my mother putting, you know, money in bank envelopes, power, phone, water, cable, church, tithing, donations. You know, the the, the visualization of that was indelibly imprinted into me. Um, I think my parents wanted us to have a, a normal childhood, right? So, I mean, we, for us, normal was church on Sundays and to bed by 730 and breakfast in the morning. We read the newspaper. We, you know, um, played sports. We had music lessons. I mean, they worked really hard to provide us with a really, what they thought was stable, well-rounded life. We went to the museum. We went to the library. Vacation for us was a four day drive to Minnesota to see grandma, right? And, and <laughs> truly four day drive or five days. So not a lot of luxuries, but like I said, everything we needed, not everything we wanted. Yeah, well, it's
2: kind of funny because even having everything you needed but not everything you wanted is a fairly privileged existence. It is now. I recognize that, yeah. I mean, I recognize that now. I always thought, oh, you know, my dad is a college professor. He's never going to be rich. I don't want that life. Now I look at my parents, like, you guys have it pretty damn good.
1: Same with my parents as well. You know, I I look back on it now. I was at my publisher a few years ago in Miami. And as my first book, Management Mess." to leadership success was launching. They flew me down there because they wanted me to educate like a 20-person sales team, social media, marketing, Google, websites. And so here I am recanting my upbringing in the room. And as I was talking about my life, you could just see like draws or jaws dropping in the room because these were people from the Bronx. These are people from New Jersey. These are people from immigrant families and Latino families. And I just thought everyone's mom stayed home. Everyone's dad worked one job from eight to four. And, you know, everybody lived like I did. It was fascinating to watch what I thought was a very replicable, normal middle-class upbringing, not a person in the room, not a millennial, not a Gen Xer. Nobody could even relate to my life. And I thought my life was like just, you know, a normal American life from the 70s and 80s. And for me, that was a massive mindset shift because although I didn't think I'd lived a privileged life by any means, I lived an outrageously privileged life to those 25 people sitting around the table. They couldn't even relate to most of what I was talking about. I wasn't riding horses in Madison Square Gardens or summering in the Hamptons or any of that crap. None of that. Yeah. But even mm-hmm. my life was unrecognizable to them. You know, a mother that didn't work three jobs was privileged to them.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think you bring up an incredibly important point about context and how cognitive biases distort our perception, whether it's, you know, reading a book or writing a book, you know, we look at it from our own perspective. You've been, you know, around the corporate world, you've, you've kind of lengthy career, you've been successful. How, what have you learned about cognitive biases and, uh, you know, how we overcome them?
1: Well, there's so many different cognitive biases, right? There's so many unconscious biases that we have. I mean, I've I have learned as the curator of Franklin Covey's thought leadership for 25 years and as an author and the editor of many of our books, including one on unconscious bias, is that it's not a bad thing. All your biases aren't bad. There are biases that are helpful. There's biases that are destructive. There's biases that are uplifting and de minimis. I think just recognizing that we all have biases and that they cloud our paradigms, our mindsets, our belief systems is half the battle is recognizing that not everybody has the same path you took or had the same head start. And once you recognize that this isn't a badge of shame, this isn't something to be ashamed of, just to recognize that our cognitive biases have a massive impact on how we treat other people, how we lift or bypass other people, how we shut down other people's perspectives. And this makes you more patient, more humble, It makes you more focused on what is right than being right. It makes you more aware of when you're arguing for your own benefit, perhaps to the benefit of others, that still benefits you. So I can take that in so many directions. The more you are aware of your biases, the less you're insecure about them, the less you're needing to deny them and just embrace them, understand them, and then figure out how does that impact the decisions that I'm making and how I treat other
2: people, yeah. Well, to, to kind of you know piggyback off of that, we're in the process of putting together a series on uh, cults of personal development. People will have heard this um, already by the time they hear your episode. And one of the things that I have you know noticed in my conversations with all of the guests is that, from the standpoint of sort of self improvement organizations, one of the things that goes sort of overlooked or completely ignored is context, not just on the part of the consumer, but also on the part of people who deliver this stuff. Because what ends up happening is that, for example, let's just take Franklin Covey, right? Let's just say seven habits of highly effective people. And it's kind of similar to something that my friend Benjamin Hardy wrote, was like eight things that everyone should do before 8am. And I'm thinking to myself, there's nothing that every single person on the planet should do before 8am. Because if you've just worked a midnight, uh, you know, a 13 hour shift at a hospital, the only damn thing you should be doing before 8am is going to sleep. And yet, People take advice like the stuff they get from Seven Habits or even stuff like the thing that, you know, Ben wrote, and they treat it like a map as opposed to a compass. Why do they do that? And what do they need to be aware of? And what do you think is the responsibility of people who create this stuff? I mean, you're, like you said, in charge of thought leadership.
1: Well, I can only speak for the role that I've played at Franklin Covey. Of course, can't speak for other authors or thought leaders, but we like to identify principles that we think govern all human behavior. These are immovable laws that are present in our lives, regardless of what time we do or don't start work, what our religion is, gender, generation, country, you name it. So we generally like to uncover, identify principles, things like, you know, don't gossip and understand the difference between effectiveness and efficiency and urgency and importance. Not everything is a principle, We generally like to find principles that are self-evident, immovable, and everlasting, and then teach techniques, tools, strategies, mindsets, skill sets around those. And again, you know, not everyone finds every book or every thought literature podcast helpful for them. A lot of principles, a lot of governing values apply to a lot of people. But you're right, there's not a whitewash strategy for everyone. But I think I could name... Five or six principles that govern everyone's behavior and say, yeah, that's true in every culture, every religion for every job.
0: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
3: It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P.
4: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt.
4: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare.
2: well um speaking of which i I think that uh before we get into the book i have have one more last question about this and uh, i think even talking about those principles would make a lot of sense in this context so you mentioned that uh you were raised in an environment that uh encouraged stability and i now realize my parents encouraged that as well and i was thinking about this actually writing about this the other day i said you know All advice is just based, is observation based on personal experience, no matter who gives it. And, you know, the most ridiculous example that I have written about was, you know, I had the experience of dating women with small dogs, which led to the observation that they're a pain in the ass and the advice that you shouldn't date them. Of course, that's totally nonsense because that's my bias based on my experience. And my parents, I realized, gave us the advice to pursue something stable based on the fact that they grew up in an environment where it was either poverty or security. And so I wonder, having had that experience with your parents in which they encourage stability, what is the message you're passing on to your own children about the importance of risk?
1: Well, I think my parents actually were a little too stable because they were very risk-adverse for understandable reasons. So I've tried to balance that out. Now, again, I was the beneficiary of the upside of enormous stability, right? So when it came time for college, they had saved the money. When it came time, you know, to paying for all of their own expenses in retirement. They're not requiring my brother and I to do that. So there's massive upside. to My parents risk adversity. They never went boom or bust, right? It was all very meatloafish. And I think for me and my wife, we're trying to balance it out a little bit more, a little more. Like my parents are still in the same home that they were married in 58 years ago, right? My wife and I have owned five homes in nine years, <laughs> Not because we were being a victim, but because we, you know, it was a business for us in some cases, right? And, you know, selling and flipping. My wife and I have done extremely well. It allows us to send our children to a private school education. So for us, we're just trying to balance that. You know, we always have money for our necessities. Great example, we were in Phoenix a month ago and a, a car that we own, a very luxury, expensive car, broke down in the middle of the Arizona desert. And my oldest son watched us have access to all kinds of options, right? Fly home if we need to, rent a car if we need to, have the car towed if we need to, um, rent, you know, whatever we needed to. We had, there was no stress because, you know, we had AAA that could tow us 500 miles if we needed to. So my boys see the value of, you know, having saved for a rainy day, but they also see the value of we're going to Italy in August and it's going to be a very wonderful life-changing event. So we tried to, balance out what my parents taught us with the idea of, you know, I, I just quit a 25-year executive-level job. I You know, in the middle of a pandemic, I left a seven-figure job to go out and launch my own brand. My boys know that's a big risk, right? And we're not spending our money like we used to because I'm in the middle of a three-year build of a, a brand and a strategy. So I think the boys are watching, I hope, what is a nice balance of save for a rainy day, Don't overextend yourself. And occasionally, if you want to make a giant leap forward, you might have to take a risk that could not pay off, but don't bet the house on it.
2: Yeah. Um, I do want to come back to the risk, but um, I want to ask you one more thing about, uh, you know, raising children. How do you think about educating children? And this is a strange question considering I don't have any myself, but my dad's a college professor. We have constant arguments about, you know, the value of formal education. Uh, Look, I think that my formal education was invaluable. I didn't realize it at the time, but I also question, you know, the validity of how it's structured. And so I wonder how you think about sort of educating your kids. I know they're young, but when you think about sort of, you know, higher education and, you know, what you encourage them to do in that, that regard.
1: I don't know, uh, my friend, just yesterday, (laughs) my 11 year old asked me what he should be, I mean, like what he should do for a job. My response was happy. That was a job he should have is what makes him happy. And he said, but dad, all my friends are picking now is the time. I said, son, fifth grade is not the time to be picking what you should do. I'm 53. I don't quite know yet what I want to be. So I do think that we're trying to invest as much as we can in our son's early educations to help them uncover what are their talents. You know, they may join the business with me. They may choose to be an author a podcaster and, Who knows what? I can assure you, they'll all be on different paths. I will not be prescribing for our boys what their career will be. They may or may not go to college. You know, increasingly, college is a a not necessary ticket for everyone. I I know, which I'm sure is probably heresy, right, in your family, given what you said about your background. My brother has Indian. (laughs) Say that again
2: we're indian like that right, that's, of course. that was that, a negotiation. Oh, a,
1: yeah, a masters degree is phoning it in right so yeah exactly you know, here's a great example my brother has an mba and a masters in chemical engineering from mit i have an yeah. organizational communications degree from a college you have never heard of and i earn three times what my brother does <laughs> yeah, he's got a black belt six sigma certification he's been the ceo of you know but i mean if you qualify it by money You know, I've earned, I earn about three times that my brother does. If you quantify quantify it by SAT score, my SAT score was lower than my credit score. I'm not kidding (laughs) you. I just, I mean, I'm literally, my SAT score was lower than my credit score. So I just think it, you know, what brings you happiness? What brings you joy? What brings you self confidence, self esteem? What do you want to contribute? How do you find your value. We know that changes in your twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties. And so I think the pressures that my boys are under aren't even, they're infathomable to my generation. And yeah. so I want to make sure my boys have the skills to, you know, build an income that provides them the comfort and safety they need, that they have the self-confidence and the self-esteem to feel good about contributing and doing something that matters, that has meaning in the world, that, you know, is meaningful work and a hopefully a high trust environment. And, you know, if, if that means they want to become a beautician, they want to become an anesthesiologist. They want to sell bait at a bait shop. At the end of the day, as long as they can provide for themselves and any, and any responsibilities that they create to others and do so in an ethical way, that's what's most important now. I don't think having a Lamborghini is important anymore yeah so I think and each that, each boy sorry. will find different validation based on their own values, and by the way, we're saving for college. We do expect all three to go to college, but I also think it's these parents, perhaps it's yours. I don't know that you know place expectations. I know a lot of people that are very happy that have a lot of money that went to one semester of college. I know a lot of lawyers that are miserable in law and they regret that four years and that two hundred thousand dollar debt. But I think it's just you know, not not always does your vocation need to be your advocation. Every child is different. Yeah. my um, so, always yeah. can't go become Uber drivers and then expect me to give them a dollar. No, because I work <laughs> seventy hours a week for thirty years and I earned everything I have. So I'm happy to have you drive Uber, but you're gonna be driving for twenty three hours a day.
2: Yeah. So you just mentioned that you left a seven-figure job uh, in the middle of a pandemic, and I think that when we hear that, you know, there's a lot of advice out there about, you know, follow your passion, leap without a parachute, and build, you know, one on the way down, all of which actually can be really dangerous and detrimental if you're not careful. And I can't help but think that somebody listening to this Basically, says to himself, "Well, yeah, of course, that's easy for Scott to say. Take a risk and take a leap because yeah. you know he has a seven-figure safety net." What do you say to that
1: person? Well, I think there's a difference between being reckless and being fearless. I mean, let's be very clear. I, you know, have three boys that are dependent upon me. My my wife, you know, is a stay-at-home mom like her mom was and like my mom was. So I have obligations. So I, I didn't just you know give someone the middle finger and left. I was very, very thoughtful. About my exit. It was, you know, two years in the process. And I made sure that the trust that I had built with the CEO and the president and the board of directors. I was the chief marketing officer was implicit and strong and that I had lots of options. I mean, I spent, you know, the better part of three years thinking about my exit. But at the end of the day, I absolutely believe, you know, disrupt yourself or be disrupted, act or be acted upon. So I, you know, was careful in planning, careful in saving, careful on having some runway and some options. But I'm definitely living under a different budget, half the budget I was nine months ago. You know, we cut our expenses by half and we thought very carefully about it and reined in our spending and debt and such to make sure we had a three-year runway. I'm doing some advising work in the company I left. And so I was definitely not reckless in any manner. I was fearless. Now, some people, you know, can be more reckless, meaning they can quit because they don't have three children, you don't have a, you know, spouse dependent upon them. We're a one income family. So I was very deliberate. My wife, Stephanie and I discussed it all. There was some risk. You know, I left, you know, the majority of my wealth on the table because my stock options had not all materialized. But, you know, 25 years was enough. By the way, I am a unabashed evangelist and ambassador of the Franklin Covey company. Couldn't find a finer group of people. I still host their podcast for them and still do a lot of work with them. But it was time for me to kind of move out of the comfort of what I knew into the discomfort of what I didn't and pivot and disrupt myself before someone else decided to disrupt me. I wanted to be mm. in control of my career. And to do that, I had to leave and explore some new options.
2: No, Well, I think that that makes uh, a perfect segue into uh, talking about the book. So, you know, what made you want to write this book after the previous one?
1: Well, lots of things. So, uh, the first book that I wrote, as you know, is Management Mess to Leadership Success. The book did extremely well and so well that, um, I kind of found my voice in writing. I wrote a book in between that called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager with two colleagues that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And the publisher thought this was a really unique voice in the leadership space. There weren't many books that talked about the underbelly of leadership and how hard leadership is. And so, they signed me to a 10-year, 10 10-volume 10 series in the Mess to Success brand because I was the chief marketing officer for eight years in a public company, almost three times the average of that role. My next book was obviously Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It launched a couple of weeks ago, um, up until just a few hours ago, was number one in the small business category for over a week. My next book for that, in that series is Job Mess to Career Success followed then by Communication Mess to Influence Success. So I'll write a total of 10 books in the mess to success genre because I just think, I think that owning your mess is such a strong and necessary leadership competency because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. You can teach through your messes because I don't have your skills. I don't have your talents. I can't think or speak or act like you. I can't replicate you but i can avoid your mistakes your bad decisions and your messes and if you're vulnerable enough to share them with me man that's half the battle is learning from your mistakes and so that's going to be my legacy in many ways is this mess to success series
2: well i, I think that that actually is such a perfect frame for talking uh, about everything that you wrote in the book um so let's let's start you know at the sort of beginning where you talk about something where you say the instinct to survive and thrive internally in any culture frequently gravitates our efforts away from our clients' needs. Uh, and so how do you actually shift them back towards your clients' needs? And why do people have that instinct to thrive internally and ignore their clients?
1: Well, this is challenge one, right? In marketing master brand success. Yeah. The book is based on 30 challenges. This is called, It's the Customer Stupid. If you read the story in the book, you'll know why I call it that. It was based on a 1992 US presidential campaign campaign where it was called the economy, stupid. I think it's natural for us, right? Every organization, I don't care if you're a solopreneur or you're Exxon, you're going to have this sort of gravitational pull towards your EBITDA, your P&L, your mission, your needs. Quite frankly, your clients don't care about your mission. They don't care about your EBITDA. They don't care about your third quarter earnings call and your you know price per share. They care about their EBITDA, their third quarter, their needs. So, in every organization, I write about how you should monitor how much you're talking about the client versus yourself. You have to recognize that there is this irresistible gravitational pull to focus on your business. In many ways, marketing is responsible for being the voice of the customer. This is just a natural thing that every company goes through until they have perhaps the stamina, the discipline, the runway to be fiercely focused on their client. I once read that the best salespeople are not those that have memorized their third quarter revenue goal. They've memorized their client's third quarter revenue goal, that they're obsessed with their client's success. It seems like a no-brainer, but in every company I've worked for, there is this sort of natural gravitational pull to focus inward when you've got to be aware of that and focus, if not as much, more outward.
2: Hmm. So one of the things that um, I definitely want to talk about, and as I was telling you, I think this is something that is uh, like a curse for creatives is they think way too much like artists and not enough like business owners. You talk about this idea of staying close to the cash. Let's go deeper into that.
1: And this is challenge three, right? And this is really about regards to what role you're in. If If you're, you know, get a side hustle, we tend to do things that bring us validation. We tend to go where our strengths validate us where we feel the most joy. And regardless of whether you're working for a Fortune 5000 or you're in an Inc 5000 or you're just an upstart, you know, like I said before, person that owns their own business, you got to make sure that you are an integral part of the cash generating machine, that what you're doing is driving cash. And if you work for someone else in a boutique firm or wherever, that you stay close to the cash, meaning you're not hiding in innovation or hiding over behind, you know, UX design, you've got to make sure that you can consistently articulate how you are either generating revenue and profit or reducing costs or supporting someone who does. At the end of the day, the people who build their careers are those that are closely tied to the cash generating machine. And so I think a lot of artists and creative types and right brain thinkers have probably done themselves a disservice because they've gone where their passion is, but they're not brutally aware of what is their company's money-making model. You need to have a level of financial acumen, business acumen to understand how does the organization you work for or with, or if you are the owner, how do you make money? You can't just outsource that. Stop saying, I don't want to be part of that or that intimidates me. You've got to understand it. And if you want to build your career and not always be wondering if the shoe is going to drop, because the first person that goes in a company when tight, you know, cash gets tight is the is the artist, is the creatives, is the marketers, the advertisers, the public relations people, because they're not tied closely in the CFO's mind to the money making model. And there are five parts of every business, cash, margin, velocity, customers and growth. And you need to understand which of those are most valued in your business and how do you stay close to those so that when the ax comes wielding, they realize, and they usually as someone in the C suite, oh, we can't possibly cut Tina because Tina is the brain behind this. And that's providing us with, you know, life generating cash or it's reducing customer churn or it's increasing our subscription or expansion rates. Do not hide behind your creativity. You've got to stay close to the cash or you will constantly be surprised and having your career be decided by someone else. Right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty-one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much. Like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
2: Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I remember once somebody told me, oh, I I just want to be creative and have somebody else figure out how to run the business. And I, you know, once we raised a round of funding, I I became very obvious. I was like, that's not how it works. You don't get to just be creative and have somebody else generate revenue off of your passion, especially if it doesn't serve anybody's needs.
1: Yeah, I think there's, I think, I think that is irresponsible, short-sighted and, and, uh, that person needs to be reminded, you know, you can think that, but don't say that. And that comes out in your behaviors, and you'll give license to other people to do the same. You have got to pay the price to learn the business side. You have to be able to read a P&L. By the way, you don't have to be a mm-hmm. financial expert to be a CPA. You just have to be literate enough because you should require that and everyone that works with and for you.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of lots of stuff that doesn't work, because I I think that one of my favorite Seth Godin phrases is this might not work. And I remember him saying is that before I start any project, before I attempt anything, I say to myself, this might not work. And I always love that because it basically reduces your sense of expectation which I think often is what leads to disappointment for a lot of people. But you actually broke this up into several different parses parts. parts. Um, when you say, you know, reduce the compunction to save the day, minimize or eliminate phrases you say too often. So let go. Let's go deeper into this whole idea of things that don't work.
1: I think the general idea of this is to you know recognize as a marketer, as a as an entrepreneur, as a creative mind, you probably have no shortage of great ideas, but there will always be more great ideas then there is capacity to execute them. Sometimes your own creativity can be your biggest enemy. So you might need to surround yourself with people that are good at process or linear thinkers. You might decide that if you're opening every meeting with, well, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And if you're a charismatic person, you might sell all nine of your ideas. Therefore, all nine are going to be executed at a B quality, then one or two at a A plus quality. It requires... Perhaps a natural level of self awareness. Sometimes you should not be throwing out 15 ideas. Perhaps you should. You know, I was privileged to interview Karen Dillon on the podcast that I host called On Leadership with Scott Miller. Karen Dillon is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. She's become a good friend of mine and she is the co author of the book with the late Clayton Christensen How Will You Measure Your Life? Phenomenal book. Highly recommend this book, How. Will you measure your life? Well, in this book, they drew upon another colleague's research from HBR, HBS, Harvard Business School, that said that empirically, um, 93% of, quote, successful organizations, as measured by financial success, achieved that success with what they called an emergent strategy, not their deliberate strategy, meaning that in 93% of the cases... What made this company financially successful was an emergent strategy, a different strategy than the one they originally set out with. Only 7% of the time were companies successful with the original idea of the founder, of the creator. What was common 97% of the time was they had to pivot. They had to change. They had to be open to influence. They had to be willing to change their mind. Perhaps their genius idea was not the idea that was going to create success for the organization, for the entrepreneur, for the side hustle. So I think there's just delicate balance of knowing, you know, when to be creative and when to just go execute on it, when to pivot, when to recognize this may not work, That I might have to pivot on a dime to know your own impulses. I love to save the day. I love to be the guy that rushes in and picks up the pieces and saves the day, not at the expense of anyone else, but I like to be the guy that's recognized as saving the day. I also work in, I like to work in urgency mode. I like to work in deadlines and have the dopamine and the adrenaline. The problem is I love to work in crisis mode so much that I'll cook one up. If one doesn't <laughs> exist, Elevate something to crisis level, so that I get the adrenaline. And therefore, I'll elevate stupid stuff to crisis level. And my, my family and friends and colleagues know that. So I give them permission to call me out. I just think it's having self awareness to understand some stuff will work, some stuff will not, and to have the judgment of when you should pile on more stuff as, you know, kind of a plan B or plan C. Or is your plan B, C, and D inhibiting you? from executing on your plan A. It's just just this broad self-awareness of how much is too much.
2: Yeah. Let's briefly touch on process because there's quite a few other ones that I want to get to. But it's funny because I think this is something that creatives resist a lot. And I know you wrote about this because I I realized that every single thing that we produce is here at Unmistakable Creative is the result (laughs) of a system and a process. And it's something that I literally am basically constantly tweaking to maximize output.
1: Sorry, I missed your
2: question in that. Yeah, so let's, so, you know, process is one of those things, uh, to your point, that creatives resist. How do people Uh build one? Because I know that building process has been essential. I mean, Victor Chang wrote this amazing book called Extreme Revenue Growth, which I basically beat like a dead horse to anybody I talk to. Um, Like, I treat it like the Bible. Because he says that one of the things that he does, you know, in taking a company from a million to 25 million in revenue, one of the very first things he does when he goes into any organization is he has them literally document every single process for every task.
1: It's a superb book. Your recommendation is well served. What you're speaking about right now is challenge 12, install processes to, to harness creative minds. Now, this may or may not be a reasonable statement, but I think the majority of marketers of creative types, right-brainers generally loathe processes. They're usually more uh, spontaneous. There's like me. They're perhaps sometimes precocious, and they're thinking. And I mean, I haven't had a linear thought my entire life. I, I'm not very good at processes. I'm good at vision. I'm actually great at executing, but I don't always know what what should come after a B. Because sometimes I put J after a B, right? So I have to have the self awareness again to surround myself with people that are linear thinkers that know how to get from A to B. And sometimes my creativity needs to be reined in because I think a lot of times our unbridled creativity can interrupt our results, can interrupt with so many ideas that we actually never land the plane. The plane just runs around and runs out of gas. So I think all creativity needs some level of structure to safeguard its success because I think the the most genius creative types complement their right brain thinking with left brain thinking perhaps those around them to push back to harness to focus to put some guardrails on so that we're not just you know kind of running around and then running out of gas and this was not easy for me because as a creative thinker as a CMO I did not like people reining me in I was a big thinker shock and awe right bigger was better and everything and so I had to recognize the balance of when to surround myself with people who may not make my idea smaller, but would make sure that my plane landed safely and on time, all passengers alive.
2: Yeah. Well, speaking of shock and awe, I think this was probably my favorite quote in the entire book. And you talked about publicity stunts and you said stunts are classic group think your product or service can't stand on its own. So a well-intended yet inexperienced team member cooks up a plan to shock and awe your way to free publicity. Nearly all stunts like this fail. They aren't either noticed or they get noticed for the wrong reasons. Rarely, if ever, do stunts when you that long-term result you wanted and signed up for. And I think the reason that that struck me is because I felt that it was highly relevant to a world in which people are constantly seeking attention on social media and seeing other people get, you know, these just huge sort of like massive amounts of attention with hundreds of likes and, you know, that kind of stuff, which I think we mistakenly value as useful metrics. So One, how do people stop doing that? But more importantly, I think it's a mindset in my mind that you start to realize that those things aren't valuable because last I checked, my landlord doesn't accept, you know, likes and retweets for rent.
1: In fact, I, to quote that, I think I wrote in the book, you cannot staple brand equity to the back of your bank deposit slip and fund payroll off of it. Uh, This is a reason to buy the book alone, because I think this chapter is really wise if I if I am ever in a meeting again where someone says, let's make a viral video, and that, that's just idiotic, right? I mean, <laughs> by the very nature of saying it means it won't go viral. You know, I mentioned I host a podcast. It's now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I interviewed the biggest, brightest minds in the world, right, people with amazing success, Rachel Hollis, Matthew McConaughey, you know, Emmanuel Acho, Dan Ping, Seth Goat, and Liz Wiseman, you name it. What they all have in common, was they recognize there's no such thing as overnight success. There is overnight fame. That does exist. Google Lorena Bobbitt from the (laughs) nineties.
3: Overnight overnight fame
1: does exist, but there's no such thing. When you, when you interview all these people, General McChrystal, you know, Nellie Galan and Bill Gates, I mean, on and on, they had so many projects, books episodes, movies that you never saw. Rachel Hollis, right? I mean, Rachel Hollis wrote, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. In 2019, she sold more books than anyone else in America, second only to Michelle Obama. Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. Nobody knows about Party Girl and Smart Girl and the other four books that no one bought. And so I think there's this idea of you build your influence, your credibility, your point of view, your thought leadership, your expertise over trial and error and over decades and over years. I interviewed someone last week. This woman, is um, her name is Tiffany Aliche. She has a book called Get Good With Money. And her book is just on fire. She's a black woman that is now you know kind of um, – uh, a challenge to Dave Ramsey, financial, financial management. She launched her podcast 13 years ago. She just wrote her first big book and it's exploding 13 years. This woman toiled at blogs and podcasting and a in an online course, 13 years. All everybody sees is her, you know, 3000 reviews on Amazon and her, you know, 20,000 likes. They don't recognize the 13 years it took her to build this brand. It took me 25 years of a corporate career of 70 hours a week of moving to the UK and moving to Chicago and moving to Utah where I knew no one. And, you know, hundreds of flights and 2 million miles on Delta to 54 countries. Speaking, writing, listening, and meeting for me to build my knowledge. So I, I took a bit of a tangent there, but there's no such thing as overnight success and there's no such thing as successful stunts. I mean look at some of the biggest videos, right I mean the thing with you know Tesla a couple of years ago with the sludgehammer or the rock and the window and you know just be really thoughtful around that they're gonna they're gonna implode 95 percent of the time. you're not going to be 90 you're not gonna be the five percent. your investors don't want that. your clients don't want that. Just go build your business the old-fashioned way. Trustworthy, transparency, hard work, treat your clients well, have a disruptive idea, be willing to change your mind, be willing to pivot, treat your current clients better than you treat your prospective clients. Don't forget who brought you to the dance. These are foundational business principles that will build your success far more likely than some stunt. The problem is they're not fun. They're not sexy. They're not immediately rewarding. They don't give you dopamine in your brain. Everyone wants to go and, you know, spend $50,000 on some stunt because that's fun. It's not fun to call up your 40 clients and thank them for their business and ask them how you can make sure their investment in you rewards them and access. That's not fun. But if you ask all these business owners, this is exactly what they do. They have the patience, the deliberation, the unnatural focus to plod forward. And occasionally lightning might strike. I don't know about you. I don't know anybody who was ever struck by lightning. Thank goodness.
2: (laughs) No, it's funny because I, you know, one of the things I always tell people to do is to go back and trace the progression of any creator you admire And look at their earliest work, and you'll be shocked at how ridiculous it seems. You may not know this, but I had uh, an assistant once put together a list of every single thing that Seth Godin had ever wrote that was on Amazon. And Seth Godin, the man who we say we'd need to invent if he didn't exist, once published a book called Email Addresses of Famous People. <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. Like you think here's the guy who writes 17 best-selling books yep. and that, that was how, you know, that's part of his body of work.
1: You know, you bring up a good point there. Uh, and I know Seth, you know, I'd say very well, uh, the guy, the guy is such a pollinator. Like he's, is, he's is an abundant person beyond reason and so generous And he proves a principle, which is in order for people to help you, you have to ask. People can't help you if you don't ask them for it. And Seth is a great example of that is, you know, I love this idea about the, you know, email addresses of, you know, famous and successful people. I'd say to your listeners out there, if you have a a celebrity crush, if you have an entrepreneur that you're fascinated with, can I tell you they're all just like you and me. They all have email they all had, you know, they watched TV last night. They all did their laundry. They've all got a bill they're paying this morning. They've all got a kid that, you know, is nasty to them. They're just like you and I. And so do not ever hesitate to reach out to someone who's your who's your idol, who's your coach, who, who could be a mentor to you and say, hey, I'm doing this and I'm struggling. Could you give me 15 minutes to tell me some, give me some advice on this? You'd be shocked at how many of these major major thought leaders and celebrities and successful business would love to, you know, give someone a, a helping hand. Do not ever hesitate to ask for someone's help. They've all got an email address. They're all checking their LinkedIn. They all watch their Instagram. They all watch their Facebook. They're all bored on a Sunday afternoon because it's raining outside and they're on their Instagram looking at all the adoring love. They'll come across your private message. They're just like you and I. The difference is they might have started sooner and they probably worked harder.
2: Hmm. Well, let's talk about um, uh, three components. I think these were really interesting and I think very relevant. Uh, Personas, the customer journey and promoters. So let's start with developing personas because I I really liked what you said about the fact that we kind of come up with these sort of, you know, fictitious uh, people that are just characters characters based more on poetic writing and stock photos than facts. (laughs) Um, So how do you actually create real ones, you know, sort of map out a customer journey and then figure out who your promoters are and leverage them?
1: Uh, this was a bit of a controversial chapter. And I, I don't know if you agree with my premise in it or not. But, you know, the story that I share, I think, is is an answer to your question. I, and I'll give away part of this book. It's I, I shared a story of uh, a private community. I used to live in in Park City, Utah, a fairly affluent committee or community, very diverse, Um. Not economically diverse, but very diverse, you know, in terms of race and, 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 um, and paths to success. And we all got called together for an HOA meeting because the community was kind of aging out. We were kind of, you know, getting our butts kicked in terms of new homeowners and new buyers to more progressive communities. So the community hired an outside branding agency to develop a, 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 a buyer persona for our community. <laughs> So you would think this would be like, you know, this is the kind of person that we should market our community to. So if we want to sell our homes, they will buy it. So they, they, they hired this agency at an HOA meeting. By the way, This HOA meeting is full of billionaires and millionaires and, and then, you know, posers like me, right? We probably own the cheapest house in the community. And this person showed a PowerPoint deck of, I'm not shitting you, a bicycle with a basket on the front in a field of lavender in the south of France with a bottle of Bordeaux Bordeaux wine and a baguette. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they said up on the screen, this is the buyer persona of the lifestyle of our buyer. And I looked at them and I, I scooted my chair away from my table and you could hear like an audible gasp in the room. Because everybody's thinking, oh crap, Miller's got something to say. And I raised my hand and said, I don't know about you, but I'd never been to the south of France. And I'd never been in a field of lavender. And I sure as hell wasn't having a baguette with a bottle of Bordeaux. What the hell is that? That's not a, that's not a buyer persona. A buyer persona is um, an anesthesiologist from Austin, Texas, that works 80 hours a week. And she and her partner ski Deer Valley three times a year, And they're five years from retirement and they're looking for a home because they're tired of VRB owing and they want to retire here. And you get the point, right? Uh, buyer persona is a tech entrepreneur from Silicon Valley that has three children and they want to get out of the hustle and bustle of the city and have a more, you get the point, right? That, that's a buyer persona. Now you go after YPO. Now you go after, you know, people that are, you know, venture capitalists. You go after, that's a buyer persona. Not a not a baguette and a bottle of Bordeaux and a fee. What the hell is that? So you want to just make sure you know your lookalikes and you're brutally grounded in reality and who is your ideal customer? What journey are they on? What circumstance are they in? What is their circumstance? What is their job to be done? What is it they're going to hire you to solve for them? In this case, it was two lesbians that are highly professional in Austin, Texas. And one is an anesthesiologist and she's on burnout and her partner or wife or husband for that matter is tired of paying four grand a night for a VRBO. And for the cost of three trips here, they can own a home and eventually retire in that's a buyer persona. Get really specific. What is the ideal circumstance or circumstances that your ideal client is in and go after them? Because I think the object is not to build your business with the most number of clients. It's to build your business with the fewest number of clients.
2: Yeah. Wow. So let's talk uh, about leveraging promoters. And then I want to talk about navigating all things digital, because I think you had some really eye opening points there that people need to hear. Um, But you basically when you talk about leveraging promoters, and I'll I'll do this in a sort of selfish way. So, uh, you know, we have uh, some really loyal listeners who absolutely love us talk about who, why, what do we know about them? How often do we communicate with them? Feedback mechanisms, shaping a narrative and incentives. So we were to do that with our own, you know, biggest fans. What would that look like?
1: I'm going to be vulnerable and own my mess. So I also own a career coaching business. I'm not a one-to-one career coach, but I've launched a online career coaching video-based series called Ignite Your Genius. There's 14 modules and people can subscribe to it. That's not a pitch for the business, but the set up for my story. Launched about four months ago and have about a thousand people that have swiped their credit card and are going through my Ignite Your Genius career coaching business, right? How to become less accidental and more deliberate with your career business. Well, it has plateaued a bit and I'm sort of scratching my head. And so the, you know, the natural idea that comes to mind is let's go after, you know, everybody who has a career development title in corporate America and, you know, offer them the subscription in the hopes that they'll buy it for their company. Let's license the intellectual property to major corporate universities that have a, you know, in-house career, you know, a thousand ideas on how to develop more business. Isn't it odd that the most important business segment at the top of our brainstorming session wasn't, let's go back to the thousand people. Let's check in with them. How did it go? Did you finish? Where did you struggle? How can we help you? Do you have any friends or colleagues who might be interested in this? If you were stuck at module four, is there a reason? What can we do to move you forward? So you have a great experience. So you become a raving fan and a referral for us? Do you have any interest in your organization for others that might like to go through it? What can we do to make sure that you got everything you did or needed out of your subscription, your $158 that you made? So there's a thousand people that I should be calling and emailing, emailing and networking with, not to try to get more money out of them, just to make sure that they had a great experience with my product. But if you look at the chart pad, it's like nine things on new clients and new opportunities and, you know, five kits in the, in the mail every day to new people. No, let's go back to the thousand people that have already extended some trust to me. I think this exists in every organization. We get bored with our current customers. We want to go out on the hunt because that's more exciting. It's more exhilarating. I use some great examples of how there are some great organizations that, you know, perfect this. They just They know where their bread is buttered. They dance with the one who brung them. Doesn't mean you should always be having a prospecting strategy. I'm not, I was a sales executive vice president for a decade. I know the need to balance hunting with gathering extremely well. But there is this idea of recognizing that you're building brand ambassadors. Are you ignoring them? There's a restaurant in Salt Lake City that I go to. We go every week and we spend hundred and thirty dollars because the owner of the restaurant is there every day, welcoming us, thanking us for our business, making sure that our you know boys are taken care of, refilling our iced tea, chatting with us, thanking us for our business. And I post about it on Instagram. We go back every week, and instead of earning you know hundred dollars from us once a week, he'll earn you know seven thousand dollars from us all year long because he's present with his current customers. I think yeah. it's an underrated business principle that so many businesses forget about.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially when you live in this world that is sort of obsessed with scale and hockey stick growth and unicorns. Uh, our friend Paul Jarvis, who was also a guest here, wrote a book called The Company of One. And then there was, I don't remember the name of it, it was I know the author, Bo Burlingham, wrote a book that about businesses that intentionally stayed small. Yeah. For this very reason. Yes, uh, yeah.
1: Well, let's
2: wrap this up with probably the second favorite thing uh, that I had in the book was was about navigating all things digital. You said over deliberate, don't overbuy upfront, master and fully implement what you already have, and it made me think of an experience I had recently. So, our investors usually will send out you know different resources to all of the people in our portfolio at PodFund. and one of them was uh, you know a company that basically is helping people grow podcast listenership. And, you know, they had basically been clients of The Hustle, which just got acquired for like $75 million by HubSpot, Uh, you know, I think Morning Brew and and a bunch of really, really big properties. And so I talked to them, uh, I talked to two references, and then I sent it over to our hosting provider and had them look at it. The hosting provider was the only one who said, don't do this. And so I waited to see what would happen. And one of our other portfolio, uh, you know, uh, podcast actually did and the results were less than stellar, which is why I think I loved this chapter because it speaks to a lot of what I think is a bunch of bullshit in the online marketing world, which is everybody should do something. Like, everybody should start a podcast. Everybody needs to be on Snapchat. Um, so let's talk about these three concepts, over-deliberate, don't overbuy up front, and master and fully implement what you already have.
1: You know, it's intriguing. I'm, I'm delighted that you ended with this. I wrote a book called Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to transform your organization's brand and your own. You would think I would have a chapter on SEO, a chapter on Google Analytics, a chapter on marketing automation, a chapter on CRM. I I know. I I didn't write a single chapter on any of that stuff. Those books have been written. They're written daily. Google that. I I, I wrote one one chapter kind of about technology, kind of one thing. Chapter 27, Navigate All Things Digital. And my big advice that you kind of recapped here is just be really thoughtful. You know, I've I've I have a thirty year career. I have never met an organization whose CRM was their only CRM. They always buy the wrong one first, and then their second or third CRM becomes their you know evergreen ongoing CRM. Is that there is a level of impulsivity and sort of shiny you know distraction? Go slow with your technology. Make sure you are leveraging and implementing the first thing you bought before you buy all of the add-on tools. Because the fact of the matter is, most of these vendors now are subscription-based SaaS models, and they're going to lure you in to have all the bells and whistles up front. You can't possibly implement them all while still keeping your job going and your day job in the whirlwind and solve all your problems. They want you to spend all your time in their tool, and the fact of the matter is, you're not going to. That doesn't mean you shouldn't maximize the investments you have with proper add-ons. I just think don't get lured into this. Well, if you don't buy by Friday, then this is going to be 50% more BS, BS. Just go into your technology stack really thoughtfully deliberated. I'd argue, go talk to some of your competitors. Which ones do you use? And what did you overbuy? Go talk to some of their clients and say, what do I not need? What, what, What is it they're telling me I have to have? If you had to do this over... Would you still go with them? And what do I not need and do not fall into the trap of if you don't buy it now, it's going to be triple 90 days from now. That's a bunch of hogwash. They want you for the long term, and they're, and they're, they're going to meet you where you need to be. Or if they don't, they don't have your best interest in mind. So I know that, that it's a broad chapter. I just kind of teach, be really careful and deliberate about how you start overbuying technology add-ons and supplements before you have really recognized, do you have the capacity to deliver and implement what you've currently bought? And have you proven to yourself an ROI for that before you start adding on or buying extension services?
2: Yeah. Wow. Um, You have absolutely packed this with value. And it's kind of funny because I think on the surface, this is a book about marketing, but in reality, it's a book about self-awareness in the process of building a business.
1: I'm delighted to hear you say that. I think you absolutely nailed it. But in many ways, I think the book is going to actually do as well with sales leaders as it's going to be with marketing leaders. Because I take marketing to task. Your job is to drive sales. Your job, to your point, is not to get likes and drive impressions and create brand and brand equity. That's part of your job. But to quote both of us, you can't pay your rent on likes and brand equity. That's part of the job. But I really think that sales leaders are going to buy this book and hand it to their marketing counterpart and say, I need you in my boat rowing with me in the same direction. Read Scott's book. Yeah.
2: Wow. Um, Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I don't know. give it to me fresh, man. What is it?
2: Well, I, it's funny because you've answered this question before and I I didn't get a chance to go back and listen to the entire episode. Um, but you know, for the purposes of, of writing a book, I've always, I had to define it because I wrote a book called unmistakable and I say it's the thing that nobody else can do in the way that you do it.
1: Wasn't that true? I, if, if I had to quote, um, one person, Jan Sincero is a famous author. She wrote the whole, you are a badass series. And I asked her why she wrote the book. She's written, I think, four books in that series. These books have sold nearly six million copies. And she said, "Um, I wrote the book that I needed to read. Meaning the book that she had written had not been written yet. I think you may have, you may not be an original inventor. You may be a creative type, but your your big idea might be the twist on somebody else's idea. You don't have to be an original inventor. I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my entire life. I'm an aggregator. I'm a twister. Most of all my content of books that I've done honestly quite well are just me taking somebody else's idea, giving them credit for it, but then twisting it and forming it in a way that works for me and works for countless thousands of others that didn't resonate with that idea, but they resonate with this twist on that idea. So I would say to anybody who's listening, don't let anybody tell you not to do something. If you found value in it, The odds are there are thousands and thousands, if not millions of others who will, you just got to go find
2: them. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and uh, wisdom and insights with our listeners. I absolutely love this conversation because you've packed it with not only a combination of very sort of philosophical advice, but also incredibly practical advice, which I I think is so rare. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, your book, uh, and all of the other stuff that you're up to?
1: Hey, again, thank you for the abundance and shining your light on me. I appreciate it. Uh, you can visit me at scottjeffreymiller.com. My courses, my books, my podcasts, my blogs, my ink articles are there. Um, all the books that I author are available on anywhere, any retail or digital site on Amazon right now. The most recent book is Marketing Mess to Brand Success. In January, I'll be releasing Job Mess to Career Success. In September... Through HarperCollins, I've written a new book called Master Mentors. That is basically a collection of insights from my first 30 favorite guests on the podcast. And so um, you can, if you just Google Scott Jeffrey Miller, my handsome mug is bound to come up. Amazing.
2: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more